0: Welcome to this episode of Profess Hers, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature, all discussed through the perspective of women's issues and feminism. I'm Allegra, and I think my favorite non-teaching job, actually my only non-teaching job, was making sandwiches at Subway. How many times were you fired? Three. Nice. Three times. And my name is Misty. Misty. My favorite non-teaching job was working at the YMCA. You you did enjoy that. I loved it. You talk about it frequently. Well, I met like all of my really good friends there and my husband there. Thought I was your friend. I didn't meet at the YMCA. (sighs) Anyway, today we're talking about something that sounds oddly specific, which is 80s ladies at work. Very specific. It does sound very specific, but then when you got into it, we have like tons of examples. So many, in fact, we had to boot some of them out to make room. So it's a decade of a lot of change too. So there's a lot to get into there. Yeah. I think we just played a 70s song, but it's the topic is We're rounding up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So I'm assuming that you want to start with some type of history lesson. Yay, history. Yeah. I do. I I want to start with just a brief overview of women working brief as in 30 seconds or less maybe not that brief okay so we have this myth in this country that women only recently started working when i say recently i mean world war II historian version of recently yes (laughs) and that's just not true the thing is women have always worked that's true it's just did you work outside the home did you work for your family women have always labored in this country right and the products of their labor have been important but working for wages is slightly different. Okay. So from 1890 to 1985. 1890. Yeah. I long this was view. Brief. Long view. Okay. The percentage of women working outside the home for wages went from 15% to 71%. Oh. So. so it's been a steady increase for the last hundred and something years. Yeah. Yeah. You said World War II earlier. Yeah. And that is the major turning point because women going into the factories was necessary even if it wasn't popular. Mm -hmm. So women had to go work because it was their patriotic duty. And what changed there was that middle class white women had to go to work. Ah. Okay. So if you think about it, women who weren't in the middle class or above have always had to work. And a lot of times for wages. That wasn't new. If you look at women of color, yeah, they've almost always had to work and for wages. Yeah. White middle class women going to work is the big change here. And during the war, we have nearly 37% of American women who go to work, and that includes married women. Wow. And it was scandalous, right? <sighs> women going into the factories, even though today it's very celebrated, it wasn't universally celebrated in the 1940s. Men were concerned that if we bring in all of these women, it's going to drive down wages. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, only if you pay them less. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, but I mean, we're going to do that. Yeah. And they were also concerned that they were going to get replaced by some girl. Uh-huh. This girl's going to take my job. Well, if she's better at it, then bye. I don't. Yeah. So, I mean, but because it was so necessary, it had to happen over the objections of men. So, men who were in the workforce alongside these women were the primary sources of protests here? Yes. And we have whole propaganda posters dedicated to those men. <laughs> saying like you need to respect these women you need to be happy they're here because they're doing us a service uh there's one really famous one fight sexism with poster campaigns <laughs> there's one where there's a man and a woman they're both on their break and they're both in the coveralls and they're eating sandwiches and he's looking at her and going i didn't know you could do a man-sized job oh my god and in the background very subtly is a giant v for victory <sighs> If these women aren't here, we're not going to win. Well, at le- if nothing else, we had very skilled propagandists. Yes. And the second thing I want to point out to you is that one of the reasons women were able to work in the 1940s in mm-hmm. such large numbers was that we had federally funded daycare. What? Yep. We need these women so desperately that the federal government is going to help fund child care so that women can go into the factories and help us win the war. Wow. Imagine what today would be like if we had federally funded daycare. I- Uh, I don't know. I mean, I have a lot of guesses. Right. My my guess would be a lot more people would be able to work and be able to work longer. And would have more of a living wage because they wouldn't spend so much of their paychecks. So much. Going towards childcare. Yeah. And then freedom maybe to, to explore jobs they want as opposed to the first job they can get. Exactly. All right. After the war, 1950s, women are no longer needed in the workplace. And so in More Work for Mother, Ruth Schwartz Cohen is, is that a book. A, it's a book. Uh, is gonna write that women who chose to continue or pursue a career were often thought of as unlovely women, Ugh. lost, suffering from penis envy, which what? is my favorite, or ridden with guilt complexes. So if you're choosing to go into a career, especially a man-dominated career, there must be something wrong with you. What? They, they get called up to work as part of their patriotic duty. The men come home from war. The women no longer have jobs. And the woman who said, hey, I liked working. Mm-hmm. I'd like to keep working. Yep. Th- that made you unloving, unlovely, unlovely, l- lost, my favorite, suffering n- from penis envy, or man-hating. Yep. Isn't that amazing? It couldn't just be that you liked working. Could not be that you liked working, that you liked what you did, that you liked having an income, that you liked having somewhere to go every day. I mean, none of those things. However. Just your penis envy. <laughs> However, because the 1950s is going to get us into consensus culture, which we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. You're keeping up with the Joneses, having the white picket fence, the 2.5 kids, the yeah. dog, the cat, all that stuff. Most families were not able to do that on one income. So guess what women sense. have to do? Work. Women have to go get jobs. Wow. So um, I know that we're in a podcast. <laughs> Yeah, but, so I'm just going to tell you, <laughs> we have notes for the for the podcast, not a script, but we have notes. And for some reason, Misty thought it would be interesting to put a, a graph. I can't help it. A graph? Well, I thought maybe we could talk about it. A graph called wa- Women's Labor Force Participation Rate, 1950 to 2015 and projected to 2024 uh, with very tiny numbers. Which I got from the U.S. Uh, Bureau of Labor statistics. If it this was men's labor force participation, it would be higher than a peak of 60%. Right. Okay. And you do still have women choosing to stay home, especially if they have children that are very young. Yeah. Um, and so we're seeing some change over time. But what you do look at, if you look at 1950, it's 35% of women working outside the home. Yeah. And if you look to what we're talking about today, 1980, 1980 is where we cross over the 50th percentile. Yeah, and, and, and it's a very steep curve there between the 70s and 80s, yes. or between the 70s and 90s. So it's this, a this very steep upward curve in the 1980s of women going into the labor force. And when we say that, we mean formal labor force for, part, for wages, and according to this graph, Full full-time. Time. And you have the women's movement there helping push a lot of that. Yeah. More colleges are accepting women. Women are having new paths open to them. And then two more things in the 60s I want to point out. So in 1963, John F. Kennedy had the Commission on the Status of Women. This commission is going to look at women working and the conditions women work in. And what they find is that women earn 59 cents for every dollar that men earned doing the same jobs in the same positions. I want to point that out because it's a starting point Mm -hmm. for when we start to acknowledge the Mm -hmm. wage gap. Mm -hmm. And the wage gap, of course, still continues today. Right. The other thing I want to point out, too, is in 1964, we have the Civil Rights Act. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 outlawed discrimination based on race, color, ethnicity, and gender. And gender was thrown in as an afterthought. I thought gender didn't get added in until Title IX. Um, Gender's added in early on to try to derail the whole thing. Oh, yeah. Because surely we're not going to be giving these women rights. (laughs) Why would we? But then it got added in. They don't need rights. But even though it was added in, we didn't do a whole lot with your right until Title IX. And because that nobody was doing anything with it, even though it was codified into law now, uh, NOW Forms, the National Organization of Women, NOW is going to look a lot at work discrimination. Mm -hmm. And the big case, which I'm going to assume that maybe most people know about. I I don't ever know what other people know. (laughs) They know. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) it's just... Because to me, this is like secondhand. But then I'm like, not everybody spends all their time. Our podcast must give people the impression that you're not a functioning man. <laughs> I just watch these fans and read history books, and then come here to talk about it. That's it. That is like my you life. See these obscure historical pieces of information. Like and everybody you're like, knows who doesn't know that. And then I'm like, talk about a show everyone has seen. You're like, what are you talking about? Do you know about Pan Am? Um, so hold I on. I think there might even have been a show about it. Pan Am was an airline. Yes. Pan America. Okay, so the stewardess who worked for Pan Am had very, very specific requirements. They had to be a certain height. They had to maintain a certain weight. And they got weighed in, by the way. And they Sounds had, a lot like Hooters. Yeah, kind of. They had to resign if they got married. What? They had to have soft hands and a lovely face. <laughs> what? And they had a mandatory retirement age. Do you want to guess what the retirement age was, (laughs) Allegra? I don't know. This is so ridiculous. 32. Oh, my God. So if we were stewardesses, well, I don't think either one of us made the cut. But if we were stewardesses. (laughs) My hands aren't soft enough. (laughs) Well, and we're both married, so we would have been out right there. We would be retired for several years now. (laughs) We were like over the hill. But not retired as in you get a retirement salary. No, just, just like you got to quit. Yeah, you're fired. Nobody wants to look at your ugly old face all day. You need to be gone now. This is ridiculous. So now challenge them on these um, hiring practices and employment practices is what allows us to finally shut things like that down. Okay. Let's move on to women in the 80s. Okay. Because that's really the decade where things cross that. Magic threshold in of fifty one percent. It is. Well, Lugger, did you look up some statistics? I did. I'm so proud of you. So in 1981, there's an organization called Women Employed that published a study called Women Working Women Speak Out, which is the result of a survey of about 1,800 employed women. That's a pretty good sample size. The survey found that almost two-thirds of those women had personally experienced discrimination in hiring, training, promotion, pay, and had been the victims of sexual harassment. So that's not two-thirds of respondents saying they were aware of it, they had witnessed it. That's two-thirds of female respondents, all of them are female, but two-thirds of them saying that they have personally experienced discrimination and sexual harassment in the workplace so in 1986 the atlantic and i did read this article it's archived online i read the same one and i was gonna put in all these statistics and then i saw that you had already done it ridiculous so they have an article called women in the workforce which i guess at the time workforce was two words but that's driving me crazy so here's some quotes we've got drastic shifts in sex roles sweeping through america Women seem to be crowding into sectors of the workforce, traditionally occupied by men. And the language here, I think, is important. The the drastic shifts sweeping through America, that's not positive language. No, you're framing it almost like it's an invasion. And then it says women are crowding into sectors of the workforce, traditionally occupied by men. Yeah, I mean, there's another way to write that. Say, like, women being welcomed into new positions. Right. And that's a positive spin. This is definitely not positive. Crowding. But the way that they framed it, when I read this article, was almost like, and look how many men could have gotten those jobs. No, no, that's definitely the attitude that the article is taking, is that the jobs are being taken away from men. And and in some of the clips we have from the TVs and movies – They still are perpetuating this thing that we heard in the Mary Tyler Moore show, which is men deserve jobs and men deserve higher income because they're supporting families, whereas the perception is women are just working to supplement the income for kicks or because, yeah, they haven't found their husband yet. Yeah, or they're just bored. Yeah. yeah. Or From 1960 to 1983, the percentage of lawyers who are women had risen from 2% to 15%. And the percentage of jobs in banking and finance had risen from 9 to 39%. So those are still very low numbers. We're celebrating that 15% of lawyers in 1983 are women, just 15%. And of course, that's because jobs in law and finance require not just training, but special education, right? You have to have a a JD and pass the bar exam. And so women were just now kind of, entering into the edu- world of education in terms of higher ed and in terms of especially graduate degrees. Well, and that 15% represents not the women that were just able to do that, but then the women who were also able to get a job. Yeah. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg talks about how mm-hmm. she would go to interviews and they would ask her, can you brew coffee? Yeah. Yeah. Is that a special class you take? She should have gotten that MRS degree. I don't know what to tell you. The number of male flight attendants also rose by 10,000 during the 70s and 80s. So that I think is interesting as well because we have more men stepping into roles traditionally held by females. While women are stepping into roles traditionally held by males. So we have some disintegration of this very hard line between what's acceptable for men and acceptable for women. Well, and I think while you and I both see that as positive... Do you know what they called it at the time? What? Gender confusion. Gender confusion, yes. In in 1983, 21% of married men said that they would like to stay home and care for their children if they could. But, of course, that wasn't really a viable option for some families because men could make more money even doing the same jobs that their wives could. Well, and there's a stigma. But by 1985, half of college graduates are women. Women are steadily earning more and more graduate and advanced degrees. So the idea that is in the Atlantic article that I really want to talk about is the idea that women earn less money because women are less good at their jobs or less efficient or less hardworking. And even though it's the Atlantic, which is a highly respectable publication, it's reporting in the 80s that women are earning less money basically by their own doing examples that it gives are that female physicians see fewer patients per hour and work fewer hours than male physicians, and that female professors write fewer books and publish fewer research papers than male professors. And they use this as evidence that the gender pay gap is justified, when in fact, I would argue. That it's evidence either of the results of discrimination, so it's harder to get a book published, it's harder to get an article published, it's harder to get a research deal as a female professor, because people are not willing to give you the opportunities. Or they see it as, if I give you the opportunity, I'm taking it away from a well-deserving man. Right. The other thing is female physicians seeing fewer patients does not mean that they are doing a worse or lesser job. It either means they're spending more time per patient, or it means that they... Fewer patients are willing to see a lady doctor. Can I offer you another option? Sure. It could also be that these female physicians and professors still have the second shift when they get home. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So I can only work 40 hours a week because I still have to do laundry and get the kids to school and make dinners. Mm -hmm. Whereas a male physician might have a wife that is helping him do all those things. So he can work 60 hours a week. Yes. So the good news is that the number of working women increased every single year in the 1980s and that every single year in the 1980s, we made progress toward lessening or toward closing the gender pay gap. More women went into professional jobs, more women went into managerial and supervisory jobs, and and in the 80s, more women went to college, which means that that meant in the 90s, more women even more women would be able to work. What happens, though, is that when women enter a profession in mass, so when we go from 2% to 15% of lawyers being women, the wages for that profession go down. Yes. That's either because discrimination or because there are more people willing and able to do a job, and so it's a supply and demand thing. If we have more people who can be lawyers, We don't have to pay them as much to recruit them. It is not, however, because women are bad at their jobs and are therefore less productive. Yeah, a lot of economists talk about that as the feminization of careers. (laughs) And um, community colleges are a big place this is being studied right now. Really? More community college professors are female than university professors. Hmm. I wonder why. But I would say that it's more. (laughs) And this is speculation. No, it is. Yeah, these results are not like completely done yet. My guess is that working at a community college is more service oriented and working at a university is more prestige oriented. Yes, I could see that too. Our loads are 5-5, university loads are 2-2. And that means we teach five courses in fall, five courses in spring, for those of you who don't work in our profession. (laughs) And university teaching loads mean they have two in the fall. I mean, their full-time job is to teach two classes. And I mean, it's important to the institution we work for, for the workforce of the college to be, in some ways, a good representation of the community in which we are situated to resemble it demographically so i think that is closer to the mission at heart of community colleges than it is to the mission of universities especially private universities (laughs) which can do whatever they want misty went to tcu i did uh so in the 1980s the gender pay gap is still there women and this is talking about all women made 70 to 75% as much as men in comparable jobs. We're not talking across the board. We're talking about incomparable jobs. Comparing full-time year-round work, which does include teachers, Asian and white women make or have always made more money than Hispanic and black women. And as of 2015, the divide between those two groups has actually grown. The percentage of full-time workers at or below minimum wage, 8.3% of men, 13.3% of women, 19% of black women, and 22% of Hispanic women working full-time are doing so for minimum wage or less. And this is where feminism really needs to be intersectional, because you need to be picking up on those. Right. And it's it's not doing the best job there. You can't just look at middle-class white women and say, that's our gauge. Right. So you want to talk about TV or movies first? Uh, let's do TV, because there's a better chance I've seen that. and we are specifically focusing on the 80s here right yes women in the 80s tv shows of the 80s or at least tv shows that started in the 80s some of these went on into the 90s and we picked that because this is where it's 51 percent of women start working yes and so i would expect also because the tv shows are real cool i'd expect (laughs) that we see a shift there to show more women working We've talked about TV reflects the American. No, no, no. no, no. Okay. So female characters have more limited appearances. They're more likely to be portrayed in a stereotyped fashion, more likely to be portrayed as a caricature. Uh, They're often portrayed as younger. Females are more likely to be limited to supporting roles. And even then, there are fewer women on TV. Okay. Only in soap operas (laughs) do women have half or more of the roles and screen time. And those portrayals are so positive and accurate and, you know, representative. Uh, women are more likely to be portrayed in the 80s on TV as dependent and are more likely to be married. Female characters more like, are more likely to be shown in the home environment. So even if we have t- lots of TV shows in the 80s with women, most of those women are shown at home. And that is something that persisted into the 90s. Uh, in the 1980s, women accounted for one third of television characters. And definitely, of course, definitely reflecting American life. <laughs> and of course, that's worse for women of color, less likely to appear. And if uh, there is a character of color, they're more likely to be in a minor role, more likely to be portrayed in a negative or stereotyped way. So for instance, as a criminal. From 1984 to 1991, Hispanics were 3%. Asians were 1% of TV characters. Elderly characters are less than 5%. And if we analyze this using the Bechdel test, which we've talked about before, which is a very low bar, right? Two women who are named named characters have conversations about things other than men. There are very few shows that do that. A lot of shows with women have women talking to men or women talking about men. Talking about men. Well, and I think it's important to know that in the 80s, most shows were still male centric. So female friendships. Yes. Would not necessarily have been something they would have wanted. Well, that requires or you to have two to portray. women. Right. Who needs two? So, where do you want to start with our shows? Cagney and Lacey, if only because <laughs> people won't stop emailing you about it. 80% of the correspond I don't know, I didn't do math. We have received some correspondence about this. When we did the lady detective episode and ladies in law enforcement, right? We made a conscious choice not to put this in, and people were very sad that we hadn't talked about Cagney and Lacey. And it's not because we don't love them; we do. But we needed a law enforcement example for the for the '80s ladies at work exam or '80s ladies at work episode. Okay, so Cagney and Lacey starred Tyne Daly and Sharon Gless. Still two working actors. As Mary Beth Lacey and Christine Cagney. Although Christine Cagney is played by a different actor in season one, Meg Foster. But if people think about Cagney and Lacey, they're thinking about Tyne Daly and Sharon Glass. They're two very different women, the two characters. Kind of an odd couple thing. They're not opposites. They're not foils, but they are an odd couple. And I mean, you have to do that, right, in a narrative. Otherwise, there's no conflict. There's no drama. Right, right. If they were both the same and they thought the same, that would be boring. right. And then we would be complaining that there were two of the same. Uh, so you just can't make us happy. <laughs> we're women! <laughs> They're two NYPD cops entering, obviously, a very male-dominated precinct in the 1980s. The show was actually canceled multiple times. I didn't know that. And uh, Tyne Daly said in an interview they didn't want to hear from us, but they couldn't get rid of us. And that women, this is a quote from Tyne Daly, women, black people, anyone on the margins were easier in half hour segments, but hour long dramas were hard to give over. And Cagney and Lacey was an hour long drama. And so what she's saying there is they had some kinds of token representation on TV in half hour long dramas or in half hour long comedies, but that an hour long show starring two women was very difficult for networks to accept and this was really the first example of audience write-in campaigns saving a show so cbs caved to audience pressure and brought the show back we've talked about this before with harry potter that a lot of times the thinking is if you have female leads men won't watch right and this shows that there was enough audience support yes that they would watch and in fact they wanted it yes And I mean, so aside from the representation and it's cool that it's ladies, it was a good cop show. And the 80s had lots and lots of cop shows. And so I think that there was an audience for this show that wasn't just women who were like excited to see women on TV, although sure, that's part of it. I think a lot of people were like it's just a good show. Right. They have good storylines, they have good mysteries, there's good action sequences. It's just a good cop show. Uh it dealt with serious topics, and of course these are serious topics in the 80s, they're still serious today. Racism, undocumented workers, PTSD, gender role, sexism, addiction, one of them gets cancer. They I mean they have to deal with the stress of working late or working on hours and trying to spend time with their family. Mary Beth has kids. Yeah, they're showing the balancing of career and family yes and trying to be one of the guys so trying to fit in and be cool and be accepted but also stay true to who they are and not accept discrimination or sexism in the workplace and, well, that's, and that's something that the mary tyler moore show didn't do right because she was unmarried and she wasn't I mean, she was balancing dating and mm-hmm. her social life but that's not the same thing as balancing kids or an out-of-work husband yeah and I mean, they talk about money and paying bills and and taking care of things at home. At one point, Mary Beth's husband uh, gets injured and can't return to work. He's like a blue collar worker, and so she becomes the sole sole breadwinner of the family. I guess you could say. So, um, trying to give a realistic portrayal of American life and not an idealized, glossed over. Yeah, it's not Charlie's Angels, right? <laughs> They never paid a bill in their lives. <laughs> so there's an episode in the show, of, in season four, where they go to an abortion clinic. And I'm going to play a clip from that episode. And the thing I should say before I play the clip is that Mary Beth is pregnant when this is going on. So they're going to make references to her being pregnant while they talk about abortion. I just want you to have that context.
1: You do not have the right to 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 bomb an embassy clinic. Everyone, back up. Abortion
0: is not murder. It's not even a person yet. Tell that to your belly. My belly is my business. An explosion ripped through the Westside Women's Clinic. While we were there yesterday. I thought that you would see it as an act of heroism, like bombing the gas chambers at Dachau. Boy, this is some conversation for somebody who once wanted to be a nun. It's getting a little personal. That's okay. It is personal. What are you so hot to kill babies? What about her? Five months. Come on, we'll all go up together. Go ahead and do it, baby killer. They did this thing at the beginning of their episodes where they showed uh, clips of the most exciting moments in the episode that were going to, and then they played the intro song. So that was a bunch of clips from the show. And then the show ran. I don't know why they did that. I've never seen a show do that other than this one, but that's what was happening. So as you see, it's serious. They- yeah, the music does not match what we just... <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, and they get into you know serious conflict about it, but they're still able to do their jobs and handle it responsibly. Um, In season two, episode 16, there's a date rape investigation, which they also have an argument about. Christine feels that the victim brought it on herself. And Mary Beth does not agree with that assessment of the situation. And there are lots of times when Christine is... Feels honored to be let in on the male officers' practical jokes, and Mary Beth is like, because she wants to fit in, right? So they have different approaches a lot of times. The last thing I want to say about the show is it's created by two women, Barbara Avedon and Barbara Corday, which yeah, definitely probably reflects in yeah, because they are developed full characters with feelings and emotions. They change different feelings and emotions yeah they have different reactions to things and they grow and change as a result of the things that they experience so if you want to check out the show the fashion of course as all of the shows and movies we're going to talk about today the fashion does not hold up and it does look a little goofy it looks like you can watch this on amazon prime oh okay if you have a membership there oh good did you watch designing women it's got delta Burke. Right? delta Burke. yeah okay. yeah. yeah i know what i'm talking about you know things i didn't want to be wrong It also has an oddly upbeat theme song. I think that was like a law in the 80s. So Designing Women was on from 1986 to 1993. And it was also created by a woman, Linda Bloodworth Thomason. One thing that's interesting about the show is that it's set in Arkansas. Not in Los Angeles, not in New York, not really necessarily even in a big city. Um, it's set in Arkansas and that explains some of their accents in the clip that we're going to play. It's an almost all female cast. There is one male employee of their company. And of course they have, you know, romantic partners and clients who are men, but it's an almost all female cast. Uh, and they're small business owners, right? They run, uh, interior design decorating business and they're all friends with each other. Obviously they have fights and differing perspectives on things, but, uh, they get along. They have fun. They're friends. The, I guess, cover art for this? Yeah. It looks like airbrush. It's very... Like 1985 airbrush. Yeah. I mean, they're wearing, like, peach and magenta, and they have big hair. Big hair. Yeah. You know, so but they they are all different personality types, but more, there's more depth to each of them than a trope or a stereotype. And they get in, they also get into political issues, even though it's a show about interior design. Which, um, it won a GLAAD award, actually. Oh Did wow. you know that? I did not know that. So there's an episode called "Killing All the Right People," which included a storyline involving someone with HIV, a fellow interior designer decorator, and a friend of the women in the show shares that he's dying of AIDS, and he wants them to help plan his funeral. Many people, obviously, in their community, and it, it, for some reason this argument comes up at a PTA meeting, but many people in the community are not fans of that, and there's a scene where they have this big showdown. This was the height of the AIDS crisis? Yes. I mean, the show was on from 86 to 93, so yes, absolutely. So here's this beautiful moment and the reason they won a GLAD award. Is that the boy who's funeral you're planning? Where'd you hear that? Well, I just heard the rumors, but I didn't actually believe it was true. Now, I don't like to hurt anyone's feelings, but if these boys hadn't been doing what they do, they wouldn't be getting what's coming to them now. I'm a Gays aren't the only ones getting it. No, but they're the ones who started it. Actually, nobody knows how it got started. Gays are just one of the first groups that showed up in. Yes, and for a good reason. You reap what you sow, and you boys brought this on yourselves. As far as I'm concerned, this disease has one thing going for it. It's killing all the right people. I'm a jean. I'm terribly sorry. I'm gonna to have to ask you to move your car. Why? Because you're leaving. What are you talking about? I'm talking about the only thing worse than all these people who've never had any morals before AIDS are all you holier than now types who think you're exempt from getting it. Well, for your information, I am exempt. I had not lived like these people. And I don't care what you say, Julia Sugarbaker. I believe this is God's punishment for what they've done. Oh, yeah? Then how come lesbians get it less? That is not for me to say. I just know that these people are getting what they deserve. I'm a jean. Get serious. Who do you think you're talking to? I've known you for 27 years, and all I can say is, if God was giving out sexually transmitted diseases to people as a punishment for sinning, then you would be at the free clinic all the time. (laughs) And so would the rest of us. So that sort of played out like a com- like the conversations that a lot of people were probably having in yes. the late '80s, early '90s, and there obviously was, and maybe still is, this unfortunate uh, myth that that this disease had something to do with lifestyle choices. So it was kind of shocking for a lot of people at the time because this is really the first show. Uh, Not the first show to bring up HIV and AIDS, but the first show to really confront that stereotype about uh, gay men and AIDS. Mm Mm-hmm and to really take it head on and again they get into this argument that mirrors maybe arguments that people were having yeah and this was in the national conversation in the 1980s absolutely this is definitely something that everyone would have had the context for watching the show yeah absolutely and the the show is definitely on the side of the sugar baker woman, and not on the side of the woman who gets thrown out of their house yes and what's interesting is the creator of the show Linda Bloodworth-Thomason her mother had uh, HIV she she got it from a blood transfusion and she would go with her mother to seek treatment of course and visit the doctor that's and really interesting she overheard these conversations that people were having and so the line which is the title of the show killing all the right people that's something she actually heard a person say in real life and wow so frustrated and angered her that she wrote this episode of the show to include that storyline also, the man in that epi- that you heard briefly, whose funeral they're planning, that actor went on to play Fitzgerald Grant in Scandal. No one cares but me, but I recognized him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another show that also talked about HIV and AIDS, and this is a show I remember watching, uh, was Different World. Did you watch it? I. Do you know what it is? A little bit. What do you know about it? I know it's set at a college. Yes. I I know that it's, um, I don't know anything else. Okay. I know like there's guys and there's girls and they're out of college. That's it. Okay. Is so, is it uh, a spinoff of another show? I feel like I knew that. A Different World was on from 1987 to 1993. It was a spinoff of the Cosby Show. In the that's, first, in that's the, okay. In the first season, one of the daughters went to this college. Um, so ringing a bell. So, so it's a series about an HBCU, a historically black college, and. Almost every character on the show is a person of color. Marissa Tomei was in the first couple seasons of the show, I believe, but she was not a lead. She she played someone's friend or roommate. The shows, I mean, as you said, it was co-ed, so some of the leads were men, some of the leads were women, and the show did a lot of episodes about serious issues, Rodney King, HIV-AIDS, discrimination racism all those kinds of things so if it's about college why are we talking about it in our career episode because they get jobs they oh have, so it follows them after college too they have job well they're they're in college but they're starting uh they're either working while they're in college or they're starting on their career path toward the end of their show okay so it's not just them at college no I think I was confused. I'm sure you were very confused. (laughs) So Whitley is a character, if you watch a show, who had the um, exaggerated Southern accent. And there's an episode called Bedroom at the... Well, maybe it's not exaggerated. Maybe that's how people talk. To me, it sounds like an exaggerated Southern accent because I'm from Texas. But I think maybe people like in South Carolina have a more exaggerated accent than I'm thinking of. But anyway, Whitley is... She starts the episode very excited about her job and this upcoming meeting that she has with the new vice president. She walks into the like the cafe where they're all having breakfast and she's very hyped up about it. I'm like a pig and humming, I guess you finally had a good night. Yes. Loud and wrong as usual. Men are the only things that inspire jubilation. There's such thing as achievement professional success. Mm, control top panty holes. <laughs> All substitutes for the real thing. Plays today, I'm meeting the new VP of Finance. And if I can sell him on this major art acquisitions, girls, can mean a promotion. Ooh, we'll hike up that skirt a few more inches and you won't even have to talk. <laughs> <laughs> it's my brain, not my considerable charms that are gonna take me up, up, up that ladder of success. Leading others to heights of opportunity. <laughs> After that meeting, she shares with her friends that she was harassed and her friends well sexually harassed. Yes. Hey, Whitley, what's up? Nothing. Does this have anything to do with that BP asking you out to dinner? Wait, hey, Bunny, is somebody bothering you? No, nothing is wrong. He hasn't, he hasn't touched me or anything. He's just saying things. Or you're just going to have to go to personnel and complain. That's a brilliant idea, Kimberly. And I would have done that. But he went in there and told his boss that I was hitting on him. I don't believe this. It's so nice to know that women have a position in business. Too bad it's horizontal. So in the episode, she's trying to decide how to not compromise her career or herself, or her values. But Whitley doesn't let it go. She tries to report him. She she argues her case. She convinces her boss to take the complaint seriously. And the episode ends... With her anticipating this big meeting in HR, but she's having a nightmare in which she is kind of put in the place of Vanita Hill. So she's so she's dreaming about the meeting with HR, and instead of it being in a meeting room, she's like behind a table with microphones and a, I mean, it's made to look there's a name card in front of her, and people are yelling, you know, questions at her, basically insinuating that, that what, she did that she did something it. wrong, and that she did something to cause it, and that she misinterpreted everything that happened. And so it's about women working it's about young women entering the workforce but it's also well it's about a very real situation that a lot of women found themselves in in the 80s absolutely and still today but more so in the 80s i mean the show is remarkable of course because it's a show almost exclusively uh, with people of color it was a successful sitcom And, you know, it was about young people and the things that young people experienced. It wasn't a family drama. It was, you know, a situational comedy set in a college, a historically black college. And in fact, they brought in uh, a new producer starting in the second season, Debbie Allen, who went to Howard University, which is to give it a more authentic feel. And she wrote a lot of these storylines based on her own experiences at Howard. Yes. Yes. Let's start this one with a clip and okay. let's just orient ourselves to Murphy Brown, which aired from 1988 to 1998. And then, of course, there was another season of yes. it. Yes. We, we all have know. We to reboot everything. We all know how Misty feels about that. Ms. Brown. Hi. Just wanted to come up and introduce myself. Miles Silverberg. Hello. Did you want an autograph? Autograph? (laughs) Autograph, no. I'm Miles Silverberg. Right, Silverberg Miles, you said that. The new executive producer of FYI. Excuse me? I said, I'm the new executive producer. Wait, They replaced Arvin with you? You're Miles Silverberg? Yes, yes, Miles (laughs) Silverberg. And let me just say what a big fan I am. you know who the Shirelles are? Excuse me? The Sherelles? the Ronettes, the Delphonics. It's only my second day. How old are you? 25. What's your background? Ah, master's degree from Harvard Business School. Working background. Three years in public television, it's I read. my... It's getting worse. I'm sorry, Mr. Silverberg, if it appears I'm being rude to you. It's just that I can't help thinking about the fact that while I was getting maced at the Democratic Convention in 68, you were wondering if you'd ever meet Adam West. <laughs> so, that's a funny clip, and that's from the very first episode. And for some reason, Murphy Brown is walking across the newsroom carrying an Emmy... <laughs> I, I, I don't know the context i think of that's a that. signal that they're successful yes. The show is successful so she's funny obviously she's very tough hardworking. she has a lot of credibility and she's introduced to the audience this way so that's one of the first scenes that people see her in uh obviously played by candace bergen the character murphy brown is a recovering alcoholic i don't know if you remember that i do because that was um that was also a thing in texas at the time because our governor ann richards was a recovering alcoholic oh i didn't know that oh yeah Texas history (laughs) tie-in. So she's obviously top of her field, unmarried, single woman, working hard, and it is a workplace comedy. So there are scenes of her at home and there are scenes of them. Uh, together like drinking in the neighborhood bar but it's a workplace comedy so she's the star there's another woman played by faith ford who's a co-star and then a couple of men one of them you just heard so of course because they were doing a new show it frequently alluded to News that was really happening, whether they changed the names or the names of the countries, Uh, but there was a lot of reality meeting fiction, and they were able to do a lot of jokes and a lot of commentary ripped from the headlines. (laughs) I learned that on the news of the day. Uh, They also had a lot of conversations about journalistic integrity and what stories were worth reporting, what angles to use, how to avoid bias, how to focus on things that were serious, like wars in other countries, versus salacious stories or or gossip. So. A lot of serious, important conversations and a lot of opportunities to see women being really smart, highly educated at the top of their field, having conversations and kind of being in charge of their own careers. There are episodes where they discuss strikes and labor issues. And she, of course, this is probably what most people remember, becomes a single mom midway through the th- through the series. What I remember about this show is that even if you didn't watch it, because, spoiler, I didn't, you still heard people talking about it all the time this was a show that was constantly being brought up like i remember being talked about a lot in politics what does this say having a single woman raising a child in a career what well does yeah it say I about mean, women i mean dane quayle made a speech Criticizing the show, saying that it was, quote, mocking the importance of fathers by having Murphy bear a child alone. And that did cause a widespread conversation in the country about the changing nature of family, of course, and work, single parenthood. Uh, has been increasing and was increasing in the eighties. I don't think it's Murphy Brown's fault, (laughs) but I do think it was one of those things where it was reflecting real life. Exactly. That that is a thing that happened. If an unmarried woman got pregnant and in in Murphy Brown's case, it was her ex-husband. So it wasn't that scandalous, but um, the decision to have and raise a child on your own is of course, a, a decision that lots of women made and is, Dan Quayle interpreted that TV show as mocking the importance of fathers, which, of course, it wasn't. Well, and like modeling this thing that he thought a lot of women were going to then do because they saw it on TV. Yeah. Which is, I think, ridiculous. Yeah. He said it was glamorizing it. Yes. And Murphy. So the, the thing is that in his speech, he the way he framed the sentences made it sound as though murphy brown were a real person right like it was a yeah i mean dan quayle wasn't like deluded but it's just the way he said it so they were able to play his speech on the show and respond to it on the show as though dan quayle vice president of the united states was saying that in the context or in the world of the TV show. And so they reacted and responded. And there's this hilarious scene where she's, you know, she's just had a kid and she's like in her pajamas with her hair on. And she's like, do I look glamorous to you? I'm not glamorizing anything. And then she makes a speech on the show about the changing nature of family and how, you know, families are people who love each other. And then they have this whole group of people who have – Right. What Dan Coyle might think of as non-traditional families being interviewed or being showcased on the show. As if to say, you know, all families... people count too. Yeah, all families are valid. So, again, this show was created by a woman, Diane English. I do want to talk briefly about Family Matters, which was on from 1989 to 1997. And most people know this show because of The Annoying Neighbor... That's the only way I knew what you were talking about earlier. Yeah, I, I kept talking about the show, and you kept acting like you'd never heard of it. And then when I said Steve Urkel, you're like, oh, that show. But the show was originally about a family, and Steve Urkel was just going to be a neighbor who was in a couple episodes. The It's the Winslow family, and... The dad is definitely more prominent in the show than the mom is, but the mom is Harriet Winslow, played by Joe Marie Payton. And there are several episodes that involve her career or her work life. She graduated from the police academy. She works in the beginning of the show as an elevator operator. Okay. For a newspaper. And that's a person who pushes the elevator buttons. Yeah, that's a very like old fashioned <laughs> job to still be having in the eighties. So she asked for a raise because of how long she's been there, and she gets fired. And they basically say, we don't need an elevator operator, but we <laughs> just it's an didn't job. have the heart to fire you, but you had the audacity to ask for a raise, so now you're fired. Okay. So she, she then works as a security officer for the same newspaper, and it gets fired again for refusing to fire other people. They wanted to fire members of her team, and she wouldn't do it because she didn't think it was right, so she got fired. Uh, She finds work in a department store and is eventually promoted to vice president, replacing a man who is verbally abusive to employees. And so by the end of the series she actually is making more money than her husband. She's got a white collar job. He has a blue collar job and she is making more money than him. So it's like a role reversal. And even though these were never major plot lines for the story, I think it's important because each of these is kind of remarkable. She gets fired for having the audacity to ask for a raise. She gets fired for not wanting to fire other people. She does something that a lot of people have had to do, which is completely change her career to go from working in security to working in retail. And then she gets promoted in replace of to replace a man who was verbally abusive to employees, which is something that was kind of commonplace at the time. A lot of people again being harassed or being mistreated by their employers. Right. So all of those are kind of remarkable situations, even though they weren't major plot points for the show. And of course This is an all-black family, and so this is a woman of color being promoted to a vice president's job for a major company within the context of the sitcom. Right. I'm not going to play the theme song, though, because it also is unnervingly cheerful. (laughs) (laughs) Are you ready to talk about movies? I am. So the first thing I want to say about the 80s in movies is that this decade of movies is extremely, extremely male. Yes, it is. So the top 10 movies E.T., The Empire Strikes Back. So this is by gross money, I guess? That's how we're determining? Yes. Okay. So. I didn't realize E.T. made that much more money than Return of the Jedi. I didn't either. Number one is E.T. Number two, Return of the Jedi. Number three, The Empire Strikes Back. Number four, Batman. Number five, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Number six, Ghostbusters. Number seven, Beverly Hills Cop. Number eight, Back to the Future. Number nine, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Number 10, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So all male-led. So yeah, we have three Indiana Jones movies, Ghostbusters, Batman, two Star Wars. You messed up that, I think. What do you mean? You said three Indiana Jones movies? Raiders of the Lost Ark is an Indiana Jones movie. Oh, haha. (laughs) (laughs) But his name is not in the title. That's how are you supposed to know that? Well, you know, from knowledge, from knowing (laughs) things. Back to the future. I mean, so, I mean, a lot of trends here, a lot of science fiction, you know, but... These are all very male-led, male-dominated movies. Absolutely. And even if we're not talking about the top 10, if we're just talking about trends of movies in the 80s, we had a lot of goofy comedies like Porky's, Police Academy, Ferris Bueller, Three Men and a Baby, Risky Business. Those all sound familiar? Yes. All male leads. James Bond movies, obviously male not great representation for women. Not at all. Rocky movies, Rambo movies, Karate Kid movies, and Top Gun. Extremely male decade of movies. If you think about 80s movies and women, there's only really two who come to mind, at least for some of my age. Molly Ringwald, Carrie Fisher. So there were some Cher movies Witches of Eastwick was in the 80s. Yeah. Splash was in the 80s. Uh, Fatal Attraction was in the 80s. So there were some uh, female led movies, but they were not as you saw. Well, even received. in the top 10. Yeah. Yeah. So which movie you want to talk about first? Well, let's start with Nine to Five. So Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Dolly Parton. I actually just watched this movie yesterday because I had never seen it. And I didn't want to sound like a fool talking about <laughs> it. So the the short and fast version is it's three women working in an office who get even with their boss, who is a sexist bigot jerk. Yes, absolutely. It is the 20th highest grossing comedy film, which is great because it's all you know, female leads. And the movie was produced by Jane Fonda and her production company. The roles were written specifically for these actresses. So that was a role I written that. for Dolly Parton, a role yes. written for Lily Tomlin, and a role written for Jane Fonda. And if you watch it and know anything about those three actresses, you will believe that almost instantaneously. Yes. Um, which is great because I like the show Grace and Frankie, which has Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda in it, and they're still I think, kind of the same. So great together. Um, Jane Fonda's character has to find a job. Her husband had an affair with his secretary, And so they're getting a divorce and she needs a way to support herself. So she's getting this job. Lily Tomlin's character is a widow. She's got four kids. And so she's very knowledgeable. There's a scene where she's like wearing dirty blue jeans, fixing a garage door opener. um, And she knows a lot about the company. She actually trained the person who is their jerk boss. She has lots of great ideas. But of course, she's never promoted because he's a big sexist jerk. Well, and her ideas are like stolen. Right? Yeah, he does steal some of her ideas and pass them off as his own. Clients would rather deal with men when it comes to figures. Oh, now we're getting at it. I lose a promotion because of some idiot prejudice. The boys in the club are threatened, and you're so intimidated by any woman that won't sit at the back of the bus. Spare me the women's lib crap, okay? (laughs) Dolly Parton's character is assumed to be sleeping with the boss. Even though she, every time she goes in his office, is like actively kind of fighting him off. Yes. Uh, but he is spreading the rumor that they're sleeping together. So then it becomes kind of a zany comedy where they take over the company. And in the meantime, it shows them being really, really good at their jobs. They solve problems. Uh, initially, Jane Fonda doesn't know how to work the Xerox machine, which, by the way, is gigantic. <laughs> Uh, but, but then it shows her being very competent in using it. They field calls. They answer questions. They take care of things at work. It also shows them building relationships. They support each other. They have real conversations. They listen to one another. So then they have this harebrained scheme to take over the company. And then there's the whole zany comedy element where they kidnap their boss. and
1: they, That kind
0: of goes off the rails a still little a dead bit. dead body. A lot of crazy things yeah. happen. But in the end... Lily Tomlin's character is promoted to boss, Dolly Parton's character leaves to become a country and western singer, and Jane Fonda's character gets married to the Xerox copy man, which is funny because there's the whole thing where she can't use the Xerox machine. So the the movie definitely wants us to get the impression that the women are good at their jobs, very capable, and that they deserve promotions and to be treated with respect. There's a whole joke that I'm going to play in this clip Where they say let's keep all these great ideas the women had, but we got to get rid of that equal pay. We transformed it; the cost was minimal. It's cut down on absenteeism, and we had a wonderful time doing it. Well, Frank, I got to give you credit; you really pulled it off here. Uh That uh, that equal pay thing, though, that's uh, that's got to go. hmm? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. It's all right as an incentive, but uh, we don't need to keep on priming the pump. No, sir, I don't think so. Did you know they're making a sequel? I did not. Are Are you excited? No. It's got all three of the same women. Okay, that's a little better. And it's written by Rashida Jones. Okay. Do you know who that is? I do. She played Ann Perkins. I know. In Parks and Recreation. I feel a little bit better. But why, Allegra? Because people like that movie. And because that song gets stuck in your head. (laughs) My God, it has been in my head for two days. Okay, so Working Girl, it's Melanie Griffith, and she was actually nominated for an Oscar for this movie. Oh, I didn't know that. And Joan Cusack, played her best friend, was nominated for a supporting actress for this movie. And the movie itself was nominated for Best Picture. It made over $100 million wow. in the 80s. and Melanie Griffith, Harrison Ford, Sigourney Weaver were all stars in the movie. She's a woman. She gets a business degree in night classes. Uh, She's a secretary, she wants to move up And again, her boss steals her ideas Mm -hmm. Her boyfriend cheats on her and so she, again, launches a kind of harebrained scheme to make sure her ideas get traction and that she gains visibility. Her boss breaks her legs. The Sigourney Reaver's character breaks her leg and says to Melanie Griffith, like, you've got to take over and take care of this project for me. And what Melanie Griffith does is impersonates her boss for an extended period of time. I told you it was harebrained. Yes. Uh, impersonates her boss, falls in love with Harrison Ford while impersonating the boss, ends up getting a... And so... They fall in love, and then there's this big reveal where she's like, she's my secretary. But in the end, Melanie Griffith ends up with a job at a place that appreciates her intellect and her ideas. And the the movie, again, just like 9 to 5, is showing us that there are unique challenges for women in the workplace. And that women have to kind of work hard or subvert some of the systems in place in order to gain recognition and visibility. But that they're capable of doing so. Absolutely. At the very end, she gets to her new job and someone says, okay, here's where you'll be working. And she sits down at the secretary's desk. So you think she's a secretary again? And she starts unpacking and doing all, you know, getting ready to work. And then a woman walks out and the woman says, oh, you're sitting at my desk. And it turns out that this woman is actually her secretary and she's got the big office behind. Behind her oh okay. so it's kind of a trick of this like she assumed she'd be starting over as a secretary nope you're starting over as a i don't know business person i don't know what kind of business it was but but she I says like business person was with air quotes i mean it's the same for nine to five i'm not real sure what their business is doing but um <laughs> it's business they're, they're doing businesses but she says to her secretary i want us to work together as colleagues so she's kind of i'm not going to be Sigourney Weaver here. There's two lines in this movie that I think are really ridiculous. Okay. I'm excited. Melanie Griffith is flirting with Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford had a banging decade, by the way. Star Wars, Indiana Jones in this movie. Um, So she says to him, I have a head for business and a bod for sin. Is there anything wrong with that? Oh, that's cringy. Right? That's real bad. Who uses the word bod? Nobody in real life. And I don't even know how she got that sentence out. And then later in the movie, Harrison Ford talking about her and I guess, a way to compliment her says, I'm telling you, she's your man. Well, yeah, no, that's not good. Right. It's like when someone says, this is Missy. She's my right hand man. It's like, no. Yeah. Mm. We got to change the expression. If you're saying- She's the person for the job. Right exactly like if you're saying this is the best person to do this this is the person you want then just say that right but let me also insult you by saying this is usually a a role reserved for a man yeah so again it's a great movie in terms of promoting the idea and even just the the image of a woman in a suit carrying a briefcase in an office being competent and working at her job that's real cringy though, man. The the bod thing? Yeah. I know. It's real bad. So I can't I can't say I'd recommend it. Nine to five was a fun movie to watch. Again. Yeah, I mean and you definitely feel like you're going back in time. Yeah. It's very zany hairbrained, yeah. 80s antics, but same with like Ferris Bueller, it's just goofy plot it's lines. Different. It's a different era. <laughs> but the fashion does not hold up. No. Nope. There are some crocheted dresses <laughs> and some shoulder pads, and it's just not and good. the hair. When Lily Tomlin first sees Jane Fonda's character, she's like, we're going to have to get a special locker just for that hat. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. Okay, so I'm going to talk to you about another movie that I think does a similar thing. I don't want you to freak out, though. Okay. It's a movie from 1988. All right. It's a Die Hard. Okay, walk me through this. Have you seen it? Yeah. You have to have seen Die Hard. Yeah, I don't remember it being The world's best Christmas movie. Yeah, I don't remember it being like empowering to working women but maybe i'm missing something so do you know he's got a wife yeah so john mcclain played by bruce willis yeah okay so his wife is holly mcclain in the movie she's going by holly jennaro which is her maiden name okay she's living in los angeles because they were living together in new york as a married couple with children right she gets the this great career opportunity to move to los angeles to work so he wouldn't leave new york and she wouldn't give up the career opportunity, so she moved. Right. So he goes to visit... You're still skeptical. No, I, I, I'm remembering all of this okay. now, but I guess... That wasn't my takeaway from the movie. Hold on. That's good, though. That's good. Okay. So he goes to visit her for Christmas. She is doing really well. People at the workplace have great confidence in her abilities. She has an office. Her name is on the door. She's in the company directory. Um, she's raising her kids. Her kids are there. So she's balancing all of those things, and she's being really successful. John McClane is obviously the savior of the movie, right? Right. He's the one who saves everyone. But she doesn't really need to be saved. Because she was doing okay. She was downstairs helping people, making sure that the pregnant woman had a couch to sit on, making sure people got business or ba- bathroom breaks. She stared down the main bad guy. She's like yeah, eye she's to eye. Tough. Yeah, she didn't, she was not down there crying. Oh my God, someone save me. Um, and there are some points where she's kind of outsmarting the bad guys and figuring things out. So she's strong, emotionally competent, well adjusted. She's calling her own shots. Here's why it's good that you did not take that away from the movie that that was not remarkable to you. That's it. It wasn't remarkable. She just was those things. It yeah. wasn't like, hey, look at this crazy anomaly of a woman with a job. She just that's was a, point. a woman with a job. And it wasn't remarkable. And because of that, it is remarkable. Yeah. This is all, I mean, because this is happening in the backdrop of an action movie. Right. That's my takeaway from it. It was like explosions, explosions. Yeah. And... <laughs> she could have been anybody. She could have been a secretary. She could have been a uh, nincompoop. Right. She could have been a damsel in distress. But she wasn't. Right. I can't remember who played her character, though. Oh, I couldn't tell Bonnie Bedelia. Look that up. Yeah, you're right. Bonnie Bedelia? Yeah, that's what I said. How did you know that? I know things. Man. Yeah. I'm pretty smart. Apparently. But for information (laughs) that is only helpful on Tuesday Night Trivia. I go to trivia on Sunday nights. Oh, I thought it was Tuesdays. I don't know why you thought that. All right. So I want to tell you about a movie. Is it a movie you've seen? I've seen it, but it's been a while. Okay. Well, I feel like we should have some type of party. (laughs) Misty has seen this movie. Have you ever seen Baby Boom? No. Okay. So knowing nothing about it, Mm -hmm. I want to show you the movie poster. Okay. Okay, so she's a businesswoman. So it's Diane Keaton. Yeah, Diane Keaton. And you can tell she's a businesswoman because... She has a briefcase. And she has like a power suit kind of thing Power suit, high heels, uh, randomly holding a baby. And holding it like she doesn't know what to do with it. Sure. Baby, yeah. The baby's facing out away from her. It's kind of on her hip. And she's sort of holding it like it's a sack of potatoes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've held babies that way before. But they're definitely babies whose germs I didn't want on me. Right, yeah. And she has this look on her face of just, like, utter bewilderment. So is this one of these movies where a person who doesn't know anything about kids ends up inheriting someone's children? She does. Okay. So a cousin that she, like, has never met before, like, hasn't seen in a long time, dies and for some reason leaves her baby to Diane King, um, who in this movie is J.C. Wyatt. I love these realistic plots. (laughs) Right? And she's a career woman. Okay. And she's all about her career. Okay. Career, 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 career. career. Love everything about it. And then she gets this baby. Okay. And it messes up her life. By the end of it. So the overarching, the the meaning of the movie here is baby's going to mess up your life? Kind of. Uh, Her boyfriend leaves her because he wants her to get rid of this kid and to focus on her career. Sounds like a great guy. She ends up having to quit her job because baby's messing up her career. And at the end, she moves out of town and starts, I believe it's a baby food company. Shut up. Yeah. And then she's like, still a business. Is this a Hallmark movie? That's why I wanted to talk about this with you. This is terrible. Yes. This is really bad. Yes, it is. So the the movie is telling us, you can't have that high-powered career if you have a baby. Well, you have to have, like, a different kind of high-powered career. Because in the end, like, her baby food company is doing course, okay. Immediately successful. Right. But it's just not the same as but what she But she has was. to move out of this big city. And she's found this new life that's valuable to her. Because, uh... But that's why I wanted to talk about this movie to you. Because just, like, the poster of it is so, like, she's a businesswoman with a briefcase and... She's all about business, business, business but until the, she has a baby. But the movie definitely is not valuing the career goals or the business aspects of this woman's life. The movie- She's shown as being really competent at her job, but then it's like she can't balance both of these things. And it's like she has to make a choice for one or the other. And of course, she chooses her family life. Which is fine. That's wonderful. People right. should no, you know, that's make whatever fine. choice is happy. But that's a false choice. Like exactly. you don't have to choose between your career exactly. and your family. That's a false, and especially because she's portrayed as being this like executive business person who could afford a nanny or at least daycare. Like she literally has a nanny at one point. So why can't you have the career and the kid? Because they're competing values. So the, I mean, so many pieces of media want you to take away that it's competing values, that you have to spend time with your family, not your work. And they are trying to give you the idea that you cannot do both, that you shouldn't choose to do both, that you shouldn't balance. <laughs> It's a complex question that people are always, always going to be finding their own answers for, right? Because you're a mom, Misty. Mm -hmm. You have a job. Yep. You're here at work. A lot. Yeah. You're here at work right now. Yeah. Does that mean you're a bad parent? I mean, I hope not. No. (laughs) Right? And if somebody made a different choice... That doesn't mean they're a bad person either. Exactly. But if we we continue to have cultural texts that insinuate, you can't... That it's a binary, that it's an either or. That you have to choose and that the right choice is your family, that the right choice is moving out of New York City, that the right choice is leave your career behind. And again, on an individual level, that might be the right choice. Sure. But as a broad cultural narrative, I think we can do better. Right. And I think a lot of these other texts did better. I mean, well, and that's why I wanted to show one in, that didn't. In that way, Die Hard did better <laughs> than this Diane Keaton movie, believe it or not. I know, right? It's I wanted to put it in there because I think a lot of what we were talking about today were outliers. And I think we need to acknowledge that they were outliers. They were. And and they were representing We should be celebrating them and they did a great job. And we have talked before about whether, you know, media reflects life, life reflects media. Yes. So we know, we started with cultural statistics. More women were going to work in the 80s. So we've got more cultural texts about women working in the 80s. Some of them did a great job. Some of them did an okay job. Um, and some of them did a real crummy job, as you can see from Baby Boom. Again, I don't I don't know what to tell you except Die Hard had a better <laughs> example. Um, so... Let's talk about overall, all these cultural texts, all together. We have a lot of women who aren't afraid to tackle real issues happening in the 1980s. I mean, I'm not going to pretend like there were more cultural issues in the 80s than there are in the 90s or the 70s. they just different ones. Different ones. So income inequality, sexism, bigotry, HIV, AIDS, racism, single parenthood, shifting gender roles, and lots of economic issues happening in the 80s. And I think and, the big one there is shifting gender roles. Because yeah. it was... Something that you were confronting daily, yes. whether you realized it or not. Right. Even if you thought it was gender confusion. Yes. <laughs> A lot of these shows were created by women. And I think that's important to note. That's why they I were outliers. That's why, outliers. The that's why yeah. they had developed characters. That's why they had complex storylines. Um, And so those shows particularly made advancements in representation in terms of appearance, race, age, status, employment, all of those things. And so even just asking the kinds of questions like, what jobs can women do? What kinds of jobs can I do? To see women competently doing jobs that aren't secretarial, which secretary work is fine and important and vital to a lot of industries, but to show women doing more kinds of jobs. Well, and to show women evolving into different jobs. Yeah. Like a lot of these places, a lot of these shows do start with a secretarial type position Mm -hmm. and then people evolve out of them. And we saw a lot of women in action roles. We talked about Die Hard. Pam Greer started. Being in a lot of movies in the, oh, yeah. in the 80s, you know Pam Greer? Yes. A lot of women fighting to advance their careers, acknowledging that hard work can make it easier, and acknowledging that their hard work can make it easier for the women who come yes. up behind them. Yes, 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 that Some of them vocalize that. Even in that clip from A Different World, she sa- Whitley says, I'm doing this and it's going to be easier for the people who come behind me. Some single moms, some widows, some divorcees, some women. Well, and that's really important right there. Because the American family was changing in the 80s. Much to Dan Quayle's dissatisfaction. Well, I mean, really until the 70s, a lot of women couldn't get divorced. Literally, legally could not get divorced. So you have this outbreak Mm -hmm. of divorce. Outbreak. Yeah. Outbreak of divorce. (laughs) Um, It's an epidemic. But it was women leaving bad situations. And so, yeah, the American family looks different. That's neither good nor bad. It Mm -hmm. just is. Yeah. Their roles are changing. Their voices are being heard more. And their, quote, reasons for working were different. So in the 50s, their reasons for working were necessity and patriotism. Um, But some women want to work because they like working. And so in the 80s, in these cultural texts that we talked about, uh, it became normal for women to be working. It became less notable. It became unremarkable. It became normal for women to pursue careers that aligned with their interests. So not the first job you can get, not these are the only jobs you can pick from, but more asking women, what do you want to do? What kinds of things are you interested in doing? What's fulfilling. Right. So you are picking a major, you're picking an educational path, you're asking yourself what your own personal goals are. Not just out of necessity, not just limited to the small range of these are women's jobs. But again, you pick something that you're interested in, that you're good at, that you want to do. But the the point is you get to pick. Right. right? You have you're not some, pigeonholed. Right. You have some choices and there aren't jobs that are selectively for women these characters kept moving things forward in terms of wage gap conversations um vocally acknowledging the privilege and income gaps between white women and women of color all those kinds of questions that we're still dealing with now well and they were reflecting 30 years the changing later changing conversation yes because i don't know if in the 1960s anybody was all that concerned about the wage gap they acknowledged it it was there yeah I don't know that there was this urgency to correct it. Yeah. By the 80s, we start to sense that urgency. And there's still not very many examples, especially not many examples of working women of color, various ages, working class women, women in blue collar jobs. I mean, we still have representation problems um, that are left over from this time period. And it was still novel. In the 80s, in all of these movies and TV shows, for a woman to advance or to be the boss. Right. And usually that was the end of the, sh- I mean, so like that was in the 9 peak, to 5, the career, yeah. that's the end. In Working Girl, that's the end. That's how those things ended. You got promoted to a job where you were the boss of someone else. And so, movie over. So we don't ever see the women in those jobs. It's like ending on a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> it's the peak. Your favorite thing. Oh, yeah. I love it. Ending on a wedding. So, or what's next in your lady life? Well, this weekend, it is my husband's birthday. That's so, exciting. So we're going to do some celebrating, some food, some drinks, some family time. I got to get him a present. Yeah, you are running out of time there. I haven't done it yet, but uh, it's right gonna uh, on time. It's going to happen. What's next in your lady life, Missy? I am finally, for real this time, doing comic book research. You've been saying that for, I don't know, a dozen or so episodes. I know, but like, my time is out. We're doing it next week. <laughs> So I got to be ready. We have two episodes about Marvel, women in Marvel, feminism in Marvel, lack of feminism. In Mar- two, I will be ready to go. Two episodes. We're getting ready for Captain Marvel. My That's weekend a- is set aside. That's a lady. This is what I'm doing. Okay. I'm ready. Are you, you going to go see the Captain Marvel movie when it comes out? I cannot promise that. I can watch some YouTube clips. I can <laughs> promise that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Profess Hers, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady eyes. I'm Misty, and I'm working on a paper about immigration and the Civil War. And I'm Allegra, and I'm working on building a new Composition 2 online course. We'd love to hear from you what you thought about today's episode, what you'd like us to discuss in future episodes, or how great you think we are. Which is very, very extremely great. To connect with us, you can follow us on Twitter at Professors, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, or by email at professors at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who has been listening, commenting, liking, and reviewing our podcast. Please keep doing all those things, and we hope you recommend our podcast to a friend. And remember, equal pay for equal work.